Welcome to a special edition of the Development Podcast from the World Bank Group. I'm Ntombisiwale. This is the second of five episodes recapping the World Bank Group IMF Spring Meetings. This year's discussions took place as the world dealt with overlapping crises and conflicts, and the focus was on how countries can best manage uncertainty and build resilience. Today, financing a climate smart future for all countries. We cannot think about climate as separate from the development process of the country. We clearly need that enabling policy and regulatory frameworks in country, as well as the mechanisms to improve creditworthiness so that we can secure both local and international funds. What it will take to advance climate action, especially at a time of tightening fiscal constraints. We have to put in place a big transition and we have to do it now. Of course, exiting coal, moving away from coal, absolutely core part of that. It's the lowest hanging fruit. And that will involve a great deal of investment, but we're gonna have to adapt. That's all in the development podcast in the next 25 minutes. This year's spring meetings gathered global leaders to share solutions for an increasingly fragile world, and climate change was one of the key points of focus. There isn't a country that's not impacted by climate change, but the effect on developing economies, whether through flooding, food insecurity, loss of land, or other effects, is much worse. The latest UN report from the IPCC, released in March, stated that almost 40% of the world's population is highly vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. So what's next? COP27 will be hosted in Egypt at the resort of Sham el-Sheikh, and Rania al-Mashant, Minister of International Cooperation, told Magda Diop, Managing Director and Executive Vice President at the International Finance Corporation, how she sees her country's presidency of the event unfolding and her priorities to create meaningful solutions for the future. Egypt's presidency is focusing on uh, three main uh, uh, messages. First, our impartiality, even though we are an African nation, but this is a cop for the world, so we're trying to maintain that. Second, uh, as you correctly mentioned, uh, adaptability, uh, adaptation and resilience, extremely important for many developing countries and the latest uh, crisis we're seeing, uh, uh, Ukraine, Russia has brought to the forefront again, the importance of food security and everything that is related to that. Uh, and then third, uh, it's going to be what we hope is an implementation COP. So how can we move from the pledges to implementation and to action? So those are the three key messages uh, out uh, of Egypt and hopefully uh, to be materialized uh, next November in Sharm el-Sheikh. Well, Minister, as you said, there were a lot of uh pledges in COP26, and now we need, want to see execution. I know that energy transition is very high on your agenda. Water security and, uh, is another important part of your agenda, but also everything related to adaptation, which is sometimes a bit overlooked in the, the conversation. So tell us a little bit uh, what uh, the private sector can do to support all these priorities. Uh, you know, I, let me first acknowledge uh, IFC's important role in mobilizing private sector and uh, pushing private sector investments in countries. You know, COP aside, uh, the work that is being done 
uh, to actually uh, engage private sector is important. In our case, the energy transition uh, started uh, several years ago. When we take a look at the integrated uh, sustainable uh, energy strategy uh, that had very clear KPIs uh, for renewable energy uh, in the country, the government did structural reforms which were very, very important to be able to crowd in private sector investments. And that is when the IFC and many other institutions were also able uh, to bring in their investments uh, to support the energy transition. And this is uh, brought together a very successful project, the BIMBAM project, one of the biggest solar plants uh, uh, in the region. And these are examples that can be replicated in other countries as well. Uh, they uh, show uh, how different stakeholders can come together. Governments have a role to play in terms of regulatory and legislative reforms, uh, the uh, private sector's willingness, but also the IFIs, uh, whether in terms of financing or uh, technical capacity. Uh, in our case, uh, Egypt uh, has finished its 2050 climate strategy. And as you uh, correctly point out, uh, it includes uh, uh, the plans to move uh, to uh, our uh, NDCs by 2050 uh, across different sectors, be it agriculture, transportation, uh, uh, and many others. And uh, the idea of uh, the 2050 uh, uh, climate strategy is that it is not divorced from development. And that's why also with the World Bank Group, we are pushing, uh, we are one of the pilot countries with the uh, CCDR, uh, the Country Climate uh, Development Report, because we cannot uh, think about climate uh, as, uh, uh, you know, separate from the development process of the country. Uh, and that's why there's a lot of integration between the different sectors and the different, uh, and the different targets. You talked about uh, regulation, you talk about a certain number of, of things that needs to be done. But one of the things that we're hearing very much from the private sector is green taxonomy. People want to know when they invest in uh, 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 to support a fight against climate change that is really targeted to activities which are related to that. So uh, what is your view about green taxonomy? Um, I think uh, yeah, it's absolutely correct. When, you know, the, the, the climate conversation is a multi-stakeholder conversation. Uh, it includes uh, governments, private sector, citizens, uh, as well as the international community. Uh, and that's why uh, it's very important from the government side to have a clear vision, to communicate it. Uh, and if there are any legislative impediments uh, for private sector engagement, try and address those. Uh, also, uh, very important are the innovative types of financing. And, uh, you know, one of the achievements of Glasgow uh, was uh, private sector uh, engagement was very, very high on the agenda. And we saw lots of commitments uh, from private uh, sector entities. And the point is now, how can we take these pledges uh, into implementation? And that requires uh, all of us working together to be able to create de-risking opportunities for the private sector uh, through innovative tools, blended tools, and so forth. And there's a wealth of experience, be it at the IFC, at EBRD, other institutions uh, that have actually showcased uh, projects, whether mitigation or adaptation in emerging markets and middle-income countries. And these are examples that we want to be able also to uh, showcase uh, and, uh, and replicate. And it also addresses the green taxonomy uh, that you just mentioned, because it gives uh, uh, comfort or confidence uh, that, uh, uh, you know, whatever target is set by the government and the private sector is able to come in, that that also is uh, uh, achievable. Rania Al-Mashant, Egypt's Minister of International Cooperation, speaking to Makta Diab, Managing Director and Executive Vice President at the IFC. To explain just how urgent the action needs to be, 
Let's pick up with Mari Pangestu, Managing Director of Development Policy and Partnerships at the World Bank, and her guest, Lord Nicholas Stern, IG Patel Professor of Economics and Government at the London School of Economics. They spoke about the tangible ways that climate financing can work for a solutions-based future. Lord Stern began by explaining the significance of the latest IPCC report. The IPCC report is clear and strong. Each one that comes through is more worrying than the one that came before as the evidence accumulates and accumulates. We're headed for something closer to three degrees than two degrees. We haven't been at three degrees for three million years. The sea levels would be 10 to 20 meters higher, threatening our coastal cities and, uh, and habitations in a very deep and difficult way. We uh, would risk extreme events, which would, together with those um, long onset stories, would push hundreds of millions, perhaps billions to move. Let's be very clear about the scale of the risks and that we have to act very quickly and strongly, starting now in this decade, in, if we are to be able to handle those risks in a way that could be acceptable. And poor people, of course, are hit earliest and hardest. So what do we have to do? Well, we have to invest strongly in doing things differently. What things? Particularly the energy sector. We have to put in place a big transition and we have to do it now. And of course, uh, exiting coal, moving away from coal, absolutely core part of that. It's the lowest hanging fruit. And that will involve a great deal of investment. But we're going to have to adapt also as we do this. And we're going to have to invest in our natural capital as well. Fortunately, if we put all those things together, the investment in emissions reductions and the new energy story, if we uh, adapt, if we invest in our natural capital, we have a new model of development, much more attractive than the dirty, destructive one that went before. We have cities where we can move and breathe, much more efficient use of all our resources, ecosystems which are robust and fruitful. It's a new model of development and it's in our hands, but we have to invest to get there. How much? Well, in emerging markets and developing economies, perhaps 1.5 to $2 trillion a year extra by 2030. Perfectly possible from the point of view of world macro and past historical rates of investment, but a major increase in investment. And uh, that 1.5 to $2 trillion a year in uh, 2030 or by 2030 would have to be financed domestically and uh, internationally, perhaps internationally, something close to a trillion dollars a year extra. Big majority private sector, but that will be enabled by public sector resources, which come, or financial resources, which come with it and combine together. We have to reduce share, manage risk in a way that allows the private sector to come in and brings down the cost of capital and clearly the MDBs have a crucial role. So also the bilaterals with their concessional finance and of course philanthropies, which although they'll be smaller in scale, can reach the parts that others can't reach and they're the just transition investing in people and places who were intensive in fossil fuels, that can play an important part as well as could voluntary carbon markets. Thanks for that uh, very sobering but realistic picture, but also identifying the opportunities. Another uh, realism uh, that we are facing today is, of course, the Ukraine uh, war. 
uh, and its impact on uh, high energy prices and increased concerns around energy security. You identified uh, energy transition as one of the really urgent uh, areas that we have to discuss. How can you, how, when you see the, the drivers that are ha happening now, how, can, how do you see us moving forward uh, if we, we want to still continue to accelerate energy transition? Well, energy security is very important and we've seen it in the past in the crises of the 1970s and the right thing to do is to move away faster and harder from fossil fuels and to increase strongly energy efficiency. Actually now our options for moving harder and faster away from fossil fuels are much bigger than they were in the 1970s because renewables and storage have proceeded so strongly. So that's the strategy. The implementation of the strategy means of course um, recasting energy supply. It means much bigger uh, capacity for electricity because so much of this story is going to be around electricity in terms of, of course, power itself, in terms of transportation, in terms of heating homes and so on. So we have to invest on the supply side and we have to encourage the demand side so it moves towards electrification and, of course, much greater energy efficiency. So that's the delivery challenge. How do we get that to move? The right kind of policies have to be put in place, including abolition of fossil fuel subsidies, the advancement of carbon pricing, but clarity on timescales for decentralization of the grid, clarity on timescales for stopping the sale of internal combustion engine vehicles and so on. Making sure that the sense of direction is clear in those ways, but also enabling uh, in a much more efficient way the solution of problems and difficulties that ine inevitably arise as we move into uh, delivery. And of course, reforming domestic financial systems and getting the flows of finance right, as I described just now. That's the essence of what we call the country platform approach. And through its uh, climate change development reviews, I do believe that the uh, World Bank is moving in a positive way in that direction. That was Mary Pangestu, Managing Director of Development Policy and Partnerships at the World Bank, and her guest, Lord Nicholas Stern, IG Patel Professor of Economics and Government at the London School of Economics. A reminder, you're listening to a special Spring Meeting edition of the Development Podcast from the World Bank Group with me, Ntombi Siwani. Namaste, I'm Shilpa in New Delhi. Fofo. I'm Muslim Sidi Mohammed in Niamey, Niger. Hello, Luyumi, everyone. I am Leisande in Port Vila, Vanuatu. Hello, I'm Piromkov in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. I am Mampumza Estar in Uganda. World Bank Group IMF Spring Meeting. World Bank Group IMF Spring Meeting. World Bank Group IMF Spring Meetings. The World Bank Group IMF Spring Meeting. Effective financing of climate action will require the investment of trillions of dollars and the involvement of the private sector. So let's find out a bit more about how business can play a key role in driving this forward. Magda Diop, Managing Director of the International Finance Corporation, led another discussion on the role of private capital in supporting climate action. He spoke to Rian Marie Thomas, CEO of the Green Finance Institute. 
she began by explaining how she saw the achievements of COP26 in Glasgow. I think one of the things that we discussed in Glasgow was this point about the right kind of capital into the right kind of climate investment opportunities. And that really should be the tagline for financing the, the whole of the zero carbon transition. I think it, it really perfectly captures the task at hand, which is about creating the opportunities for finance providers to fund the transition in a way that meets their risk-adjusted returns hurdles. So removing the barriers so that capital can flow. And those barriers can take many forms, as we know, but as we're talking about risk and rewards, let's focus on possible solutions to removing financial barriers. And you've kindly invited me to give an example of the work that we've been doing. And I'd love to share an anecdote about the work that we've been doing in South Africa with the South African banks and the investors. The banks there are facing a specific barrier, which is that the deep pools of pension capital in South Africa need to invest in investment grade securities such as a government bonds. And so that often exempts them from investing in much needed energy, waste and water infrastructure in response to climate change. So by providing a de-risking facility that would partially guarantee the debt needed to fund those transactions, the banks would be able to provide finance at competitive rates and tenors, confident that they could then syndicate that to local domestic pension and institutional funds. So we've developed a novel green finance guarantee fund with partners in the UK and in South Africa that can provide that de-risking. And also importantly, we've structured that fund so that it would include government funding, development bank funding and private capital all deployed together so that each type of finance provider receives the returns that they're seeking in line with their mandate. In the course of developing this fund, we uncovered over a billion pounds worth of climate smart infrastructure projects that the banks would consider funding if only they had the benefit of this guarantee solution. So just finally, the reason I'm particularly excited about this project is um, that whilst South Africa is the perfect jurisdiction for a proof of concept such as this, it's an entirely replicable solution in other countries. So if we can identify the situations where with some de-risking, we can crowd in private capital, we're not only leveraging scarce government balance sheet in those transactions, we're also freeing up government development capital for those situations where it's more challenging to create a commercial case. So for example, to fund certain adaptation measures, but then that's a whole other topic for us to discuss. And uh, you said something quite interesting, Ryan, uh, earlier, you insisted on what needs to be done in emerging economies. And you, 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 you gave some examples, you talk about South Africa, and I'm sure that you have some other countries in mind. So what will it take today if we want to mobilize more resources from emerging ec economies? Especially, I think that there will be a lot of sensitivity about social bonds, linking environment with social inclusion. So tell me what you think about that. <laughs> I'd be happy to. I think as a, as a broad comment, I'd say, you know, this is, is really a challenge of leadership and collaboration and, and it's across all economies not only emerging markets and you know whilst i mentioned earlier a financial mechanism that channels government capital efficiently alongside development and private capital in order to create lending and um, investment opportunities for local banks and investors we, but we can't solve for a one and a half degree aligned world purely through financial instruments we clearly need that enabling policy and regulatory frameworks in country, as well as the mechanisms to improve creditworthiness so that we can secure both local and international funds. 
Um, and as implied in your question, that they need to be led in country by those who have a, a really detailed understanding of local conditions. And that's where organizations like the IFC, you've got 16 years of experience financing opportunities in emerging markets and developing economies. You have such an important role in continuing to familiarize both local and international mainstream finance institutions with the opportunity for commercial investments and helping overcome perceptions of risk. For example, very practically pointing at your historic default rates. Um, so our research has also identified green banks as highly efficient vehicles in country to channel domestic capital, both public and private capital towards climate smart projects. And I guess finally, you know, there are no intellectually coherent high carbon pathways to prosperity. The science and the recent IPCC report has been very, very clear on this. So building these collaborative initiatives and these institutions that involve policymakers, industry experts, and financiers is absolutely key. It's a very interesting to hear it uh, say by someone who's scientist by training you. Uh, a lot of people really don't know it, but you are scientists by training. So saying that it's uh, not an exact science, but we need to put together institutions so that people can work and create uh, this social contract that mobilize everybody around the, these targets. But you have also something quite interesting is that uh, we need to de-risk, we need to have partnership, public and private needs to work together. But there is something I haven't heard a lot about, which seems to be coming more and more into conversation, is that maybe more investment in efficiency. You're talking about fighting against climate change uh, by reducing emission, and uh, uh, hearing people going to COP27, increasingly I hear people talking about reducing the waste in, in, uh, in networks uh, in uh, electricity network, reducing the, the leakages in, in water pipes, uh, reducing all these inefficiency that we, we have. What is your take on that? Well, I fully agree with you here in uh, at the Green Finance Institute. One of our flagship pro projects has been looking at the efficient energy efficiency of buildings, which, uh, you know, here in the UK, our building stock accounts for about a quarter of our emissions. And this is clearly a a topic that really resonates with consumers, it resonates with the electorate, but finding ways of financing that upfront capital expenditure that then enables people to have lower energy bills. And so, and the same analogy in industry where you invest the capex upfront in, lower, in order to have the lower operating expenditure ongoing. These are real challenges that again needs financiers to be working closely with regulators, policymakers, in order to actually um, accelerate all of this. This is about both supply and demand. It's about efficiency. It's about using resources well and efficiently, as well as looking at our sources of demand and having you know, more reliance on renewable energies and uh, climate smart infra. Makta Diop, Managing Director of the International Finance Corporation, in a fascinating discussion with Rian Mari Thomas, CEO of the Green Finance Institute. We are almost at the end of today's edition of the Development Podcast. But before we go, let's return to Lord Nicholas Stern, IG Patel Professor of Economics and Government at the London School of Economics, for some concluding thoughts. COP26 was very good in setting a roadmap setting the targets, the private sector involvement, the commitment to net zero, the rising uh, place of um, adaptation, natural capital, 
and uh, so on. But COP27 is the delivery COP, and that is very clear with our Egyptian uh, friends and in their leadership. And of course, it's an African COP. In the priorities that we see on that delivery, surely the energy transition is um, very clearly there as one of the key priorities. Adaptation and resilience, we've seen how devastating climate change can be already with us, and it's going to get more difficult. So adaptation and resilience would be a second important uh, priority. Integrating, of course, adaptation resilience with emissions reductions as we can through decentralized solar, through public transport, through mangrove, mangroves and so on. We can put mitigation adaptation development together and we must. And of course, finance. I've already indicated the scale of finance that we need. It's going to be critical to advance of commitment, advance of ambition. So in that finance story, the um, private finance is going to be at center stage, but it will require reduction of risk, sharing of risk, management of risk. And in that story, then the combination with the bilaterals and the concessional money they can bring, the MDBs with the lower cost of capital and the skills they can bring and the management of risk are going to be enormously important, as will the philanthropies and the voluntary carbon markets. Second part of delivery is getting behind those countries which are already making strong moves and putting their country platforms in place. I think particularly of South Africa, which has worked so hard to get its clear plan for transforming the economy in place. But other countries too, Indonesia and India and Vietnam are all moving uh, very strongly. So countries that are coming forward, those are just examples, but other countries that are coming forward, we have to get behind them in the delivery story to show in those specific cases that the world is ready to get behind uh, their investments. Lord Nicholas Stern with some rallying words. Thanks so much for listening to the special edition of the Development Podcast, recapping the key conversations from our spring meetings. Next time, we'll be exploring the particular challenges facing fragile states from Yemen to Ukraine. It'll be another great show, so please do join us then. I'm Intombi Siwale, and the producer is Sarah Trina. See you then.